Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Best Pictures Podcast. This is Maggie, and I'm Ian. And for this episode, we are doing the 39th Best Picture winner, A Man for All Seasons. This is a 1966 British biographical drama adapted from Robert Bolt's play of the same name. It is directed by Fred Zinneman, who previously won Best Director for From Here to Eternity, which we have covered on this podcast. I feel like it makes sense. The, it these, does make those sense. Those films have a little bit of a similar vibe. They definitely do. Um, this one, though, is about the conflict between Henry VIII and Sir Thomas More. So heads up, there's going to be some history lessons in this episode, which I'm super excited about yeah, because Maggie's I'm about a history to drop nerd. Some knowledge. <laughs> yes, I did. I did like read up a little bit more on some of that stuff just to make sure that like my memory was correct, and uh-huh. so I'm. Not going to be just like spouting stuff that's like, I don't know, because I haven't studied this since like high school. I mean, it's fine. It stars Paul Schofield as Sir Thomas More, Wendy Hiller, Leo McKern, Orson Welles, who played Cardinal Wolsey, Robert Shaw, who we talked about on this podcast in Jaws. He was Quint in Jaws. He's Henry VIII in A Man for All Seasons. And a podcast favorite, Susanna York. I know. I saw her and I was like, oh, you're so good yeah she was sophie western on in tom jones Uh and we loved her then and i loved her in this i did too i thought her casting was really good agreed and it was interesting to see her play two period but also totally different roles they're both so likable but they are very different exactly yeah exactly uh, Schofield actually played more in both the West End production and the Broadway production of the play. He won a Tony for his stint on Broadway. And there was some concern when they were initially casting the film that he was not well known enough, which kind of echoes the concern in our previous film, Sound of Music, around Julie Andrews and Christopher Plummer with them being very well known stage um, actors people being worried that maybe they weren't known to movie audiences well enough to like have that leading role. And I think that's kind of an interesting pattern because it reminds me a little bit, the idea of Hollywood taking these really good stage performers Uh and transferring them to the big screen to do these adaptations of these plays. It reminds me a lot of when we saw the transition from silent to talkies in like the twenties, how they just suddenly started recruiting people from stage because they were like, "You, you know how to say yeah. lines, <laughs> and your voice is not bad." Yeah, so it seems like I don't know. I I thought it was kind of a fun, like circular pattern we seem to have found ourselves in. This ranks number forty three on the British Film Institute's greatest British films. It also um, won Best Director for Fred Zinneman. Paul Schofield won for Best Actor. Robert Shaw was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Wendy Hiller was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. Robert Bolt won for Best Adapted Screenplay. It won for Best Cinematography Color and also Best Costume Design Color. I'm glad it didn't win for set. (laughs) But the rest of it was amazing. I thought the set was good. The set was effective, but I didn't think it was spectacular. Like it was very stark when it needed to be. It was uh, the appropriate level or it, like it, it didn't feel special. It was to realistic. Me in the way the costumes I, did. Well, I, I felt that the set was realistic. Like I think Tudor architecture is really pretty, but it's not as grandiose as maybe some other periods in history. Oh, for sure. So I, I feel like that kind of might be what lends a little bit to the less like grandeur uh-huh. and it also it's adapted from a screenplay so like you're dealing with a lot of interiors yeah 
and you're dealing with like these much more like static, more enclosed spaces. Other nominees from that year. I don't know if you saw what I tweeted <laughs> while watching this, <laughs> but I was doing the background reading before I started watching the movie, which is what I usually do. Uh-huh. And um, I, one of these nominees, other nominees, I saw on the list, and I was like, A Man for All Seasons better be fucking phenomenal if it beat this other movie. So the other nominees were Alfie, the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming, the Sand Pebbles, and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? I know who's, you're looking at me like I should know what film this is, and I'm familiar with the name of it. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is, oh God, I don't even know how to describe it because it is so good. It is... I mean, you could in, just say it's so good. But like that doesn't do it justice. <laughs> it, it's incredible. It is really dark. But it's literally for people. Uh-huh. It was nominated for 13 awards, which means it was the first. And at least as of like the background I was reading as of uh-huh. like 2012 confirmed, it was the only instance of a film being nominated in every category it was eligible for. Whoa. And it was also the first instance of a film receiving an acting nomination for every credited cast member. Now it's because there are four cast members. But, but still. Yeah. And Elizabeth Taylor won for Best Actress, I believe. And so it was really I forget good. her name, but the Best Supporting Actress is the one who took that uh-huh. category. Sandy Dennis, I think. But what I'm saying is that that movie is absolutely phenomenal. I think in some way we should cover it on the podcast eventually. That made me go into A Man for All Seasons with like a bit of a chip on my shoulder and a bit of like, A Man for All Seasons, you have something to prove. <laughs> I personally would still give the award to Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, but I actually did really enjoy A Man for All Seasons. I appreciated A Man for All Seasons, and hearing that it won for cinematography, it won for costume design, like, I am on board with it, and I think it's a good movie. It didn't quite resonate with me in the same way that I think it did you, but I got some major Emil Zola vibes oh, from it. Oh, absolutely. And that's another movie that I can appreciate why you love it, and, like, I get it objectively. It just doesn't have that emotional connection for me. Yes, this was this was a movie that was, I think, very much set up for me and not as much set up for you. Yes. Because I am a massive history nerd and I think we get into some fun like <laughs> philosophical, liter- very literary themes. And like my two favorite musicals in the world are Le Mis and Hamilton. Like I love a good like <laughs> standing up to the system like. Yes, which is what this was yeah, like yeah. from within the system also. I'd yeah. Yeah. So I guess watch notes? Uh, Yeah, I think so. Go into this. When this uh, movie opened, I <laughs> I don't know. I had a mixed feeling, and I know that I, I texted Maggie this too, where it had a very self-important opening, I thought, with the shots of the gargoyles and this like whole, we have to send the courier. But I kind of liked it because it's a little ridiculous, like the formality of it with like the courier. And we don't see really what's in the letter. We just see Woolsey signing it, which I I, didn't even know who Woolsey was at that point. I I assumed so, but I also didn't want to assume so. You can assume so. Okay. I immediately knew where we were in the timeline. 
because one thing that I will say that I liked about this movie, because when uh-huh. I read that it's like, oh, about like Henry VIII and Sir Thomas More, is I was like, oh my God, it's going to be this really long film. It's going to start from like the beginning of Henry VIII becoming king and like all of that shit. No, it's a very specific period of time in uh-huh. the more Henry VIII relationship. Like they have already met, they are already friends. It is in the middle of Henry VIII wanting to divorce Catherine of Aragon so that he can marry Anne Boleyn. And of course that event is really what precipitates the church of England breaking off from the Catholic church. So mm-hmm. we're at the beginning of this process where he has already decided he wants the divorce. He has sent Cardinal Wolsey, who is like the highest is he? Well, I guess the archbishop of the archbishop of Canterbury would theoretically potentially be the highest or was that after the break anyway cardinal woolsey is like one of if not the highest figures in the english like branch of the branch of the catholic church exactly he is also a member of like henry the eighth's court and cabinet yeah i don't think they called it a cabinet but basically his board of advisors exactly so he's very important politically and diplomatically and he has been sent to go talk to the pope because The whole thing with divorce was that it's not supposed to happen, but if the Pope says it can happen, it can happen. So you didn't really get a divorce so much as you got an annulment. Yeah, yeah. That was like, oh, your marriage isn't valid because like maybe it wasn't consummated. Or as Henry argues, Catherine of Aragon was originally married to his older brother who was supposed to be king. His older brother dies. That's why Henry becomes king and then Henry marries Catherine. Now, fun historical fact, in order for Henry and Catherine to get married in the first place, because she had been married to his brother, the Pope had to okay it. So a Pope had already okayed their marriage, and then he's like, oh, that Pope made a mistake, which is a thing Popes do not like to hear, <laughs> whether <laughs> well, it is a mistake it, what, of it was their a own. different Pope? I think it might have been a different Pope, but even different Popes don't like to be like that Pope made a mistake because it just implies fallibility of the office. So there's all this politics. Particularly at that time. Yeah, like, I don't, yeah. I'm I mean, not Catholic, so I don't so. know, like, how much of that mentality is, like, still part of the infrastructure. But, like, at the 1500s, Catholicism, the church is also already feeling threatened because we're in the middle of the Reformation. Yeah. So that's a little bit of, like, the political situation that's co- uh-huh. going on. This movie starts with Wolsey has come back from talking to the Pope, and the Pope was like, nah, dude. not happening so Wolsey now has to tell a notoriously volatile king nah dude (laughs) which is why Wolsey is so stressed and so he we see him sign the letter it's passed from like the courier to various people to eventually get to sir thomas more who is another very close advisor of henry and thomas more was very devout Uh uh-huh and he was Catholic, uh, very much against like the Protestant Reformation, but he was also very much a Renaissance humanist. So he believed very heavily in education and knowledge uh-huh. and like very atypical of the time. But he also kind of set a trend for this. He believed in educating his daughters just as much as his sons. So Susanna York's character uh-huh. of Margaret, who plays such an important role in this also was like very important historically. And like mm-hmm. their relationship is a huge part of this. So that's kind of where Thomas More is sitting. He's this very like, principled. I would say rigid moralist. Yeah. Like he's very much principled. I think that's a good word. He has certain principles and he's not going to stray from them versus 
Yeah. Volatile king. Okay, so understanding all of this now, I'm... I, I know that I'm was a lot, liking, but I feel like it adds a lot to the movie. It does. And I think it changed... Now that I under... Well, because I'm just an uncultured swine. It's fine. <laughs> we we know this. Um, I feel a little bad. I yelled that at you, and I can't remember what episode I did, but... Oh, no. It was an I, early one. <laughs> I will own that title. I don't expect um, everyone to know this particular historical situation in <laughs> as much depth as I do, but um but no, they they hit all of these points right off the bat. And yeah. I'm really appreciating that more now. So <laughs> more now? <laughs> oh geez. Um so like the fact that more immediately is like, okay, I gotta go take this long ass boat trip up the river to go visit Chan uh Woolsey. Woolsey. I was like Chancellor. No, Woolsey. Um, and then reiterate his opinion about how he has these principles and he is going to advise in line with the principles that the king has asked him to like bring and to the Woolsey's table. And Woolsey's like, he, he doesn't want, like, he may have said he wants you to advise him and that he wants to hear the truth from you, but like, he doesn't actually want to hear the truth from you. He wants to hear what he wants the truth to be from you. Oh, and that theme comes back oh, yeah. in a bit, which that was a, that's a scene I do actually really want to talk oh, yeah. about. I do also like on the way out how they set up a whole bunch of stuff for later on in the film. Mm -hmm. So we do, we know that Thomas Moore is a judge. He's hearing a whole bunch of different cases from different places and he gets all these notes and a big silver chalice, which I wondered why he was taking that in the first place. Cause I was kind of like, this is incongruous based on your previous discussion. Mm -hmm. But the cup works really well, I think, in the next couple scenes to, again, hammer home how principled, to use that word again, Sir Thomas More was. Mm -hmm. So the first being him throwing it off the boat and then... Once he realizes that it's intended as yeah, a bribe. Exactly. And then, again, when he gives it away to Rich, which, why would you give that to Rich, that scum of the earth person? Mm, I disagree that Rich is the scum of the earth. I think he is a person who is ambitious, who has been so underestimated. And I think that one of Thomas More's big slip ups is that he and he never really quite explained, at least to me, uh -huh. satisfactorily why he was so against really mentoring Rich and getting him a position because in the government, uh -huh. because Rich really wants to be part of the government and more just keeps denying him, denying him, denying him without ever really giving him a good reason why. And he's not being necessarily like mean to him because Thomas Moore isn't really a mean person. He's being dismissive. And eventually it comes back to bite him in the ass because Rich becomes the key witness against him. And I'm like, you basically built up resentment to this man because you were dismissing him, dismissing him, dismissing him, and he realized that he wasn't going to get anywhere taking your example, so uh -huh. he took the example of the cutthroats, like Cromwell. Yeah. He was like, I'm not being taken seriously. In order to be taken seriously, I have to do it this other way. Like, I'm going to have to tie myself to these more corrupt individuals because the person who I thought would help me isn't helping me. Uh -huh. And I think that's a bit of a lesson in that, like, it's all well and good if you're like principled and everything, but you have to not necessarily bend your principles, but be willing to let in other people and like 
reach out to other people, even if you don't necessarily see them at like your level uh-huh. of principle, because otherwise you're not going to actually change anything. Like, I think if he, well, could, yeah, like if he had reached people where they are sort of exactly thing. like it's, it's the idea of like when you're talking to someone who you disagree with on certain core values, immediately shutting them down uh-huh. versus like trying to kind of reach out and be like, Hey, here's what I'm, where I'm coming from. And this is why I, I think this is a bad idea and like based on this which because more never explains to rich why he won't get him a position he's just like mm-hmm. i won't do it well see i i interpret that whole thing very differently and in more of like a rich fell prey to the system and was swallowed whole i think he did too but i think if he had had a little bit more guidance and had not been just shut down so much then i don't think he would have fallen prey to somebody like cromwell like, I feel like Cromwell's the real snake. I don't feel... I feel like Rich was a pawn who got used. Okay, yeah, that I agree with. I'll walk back my previous statement and say that he's just not the most politically adroit. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, I, that was a long way to go through. The cup is key. Yes. And I love how they treated it in the beginning. And I love how it comes back. We'll get there mm-hmm. eventually. We're also introduced to Norfolk who becomes very important. He is a very prominent noble and he very much likes more. He's Norfolk's so rough more, around the edges. He's more practical, <laughs> I would say. He's a little bit more of a realist, a little bit more practical in that he very much understands the dangerous ground everyone's kind of treading at this point. And Well, and you can tell that he's out for preservation yes. over most anything else he's not he's not going to like actively throw anybody under the bus but he's also if you're in a lot of danger and he doesn't think he can save you he's not going to be seen with you right and he's well he isn't (laughs) yeah (laughs) so we get introduced again to some of the really big players in that first scene first set of scenes and then we get his home life next who I would argue that his wife and Margaret are definitely also like big players. Just I agree. On, on slightly different ground, but exactly. They are very, very influential. And super trusted from his perspective. So again, it comes out that um his daughter is super, super well educated. There's some comments made by his wife about how she is Thomas More's heart. They they have a great stuff. I it's love their relationship so and I think the actors play it so well. It's they clearly like love each other very much, but also like so respect each other's opinions and right. respect each other's like differences too. Because speaking of her <laughs> later fiance. Yeah. What is his name's Roper, I think? Roper, yeah. yeah. So uh Roper the Younger. Um He's very much like this hothead idealist who even in that first conversation, because he's now like talking about uh, Martin Luther and like all of the Protestant Reformation and like speaking out against the church, which Thomas doesn't like. And he like shuts him down firmly, but kindly, I would say. But we get this idea that Rover is kind of like he's that he's that person who like jumps on whatever's like the most trendy new thing like whatever new idea is out there like he's in it he's all for it as soon as it means he can't marry (laughs) he switches his tune like immediately yeah because he asks if he can marry margaret and uh thomas is like no because you're not a catholic and then like 
a couple scenes later, like Roper's changed his tune and he's like, I've decided that Protestantism is stupid. <laughs> like, can I marry Margaret now? Well, it was a little bit more nuanced than that. It, it, I actually appreciated I mean. yeah. it where it was like, I actually, you know, I'm not arguing against the church. I'm just sh- wanting to say that it has flaws. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, yeah. dude. <laughs> but he, he like kind of tempers himself a little bit. But um, I do like, even in that first scene that, more like tells margaret that she can't marry him because like he he's not a catholic and all that stuff but he isn't like you can never see him again like he he still like respects her enough yeah it's like okay and i think he also knows that like roper will eventually like come back to something else oh yeah well and what what did their butler say it's like it's really hard to keep him out of the house (laughs) yeah so i again I, i really liked how they with asides added a lot of this kind of little character nuance yeah that and, and roper provides like a nice bit of comic relief for us i feel like yeah i'd agree yeah again that little bit a little bit of home life um big touch points Woolsey dies or is on his deathbed i don't understand exactly what's going on in that like was he's he poisoned dying. he's no he's just old and stressed yeah he strikes me as one of those. He's Orson like, Welles when Orson Welles was the size of Orson Welles's ego. Oh shit! Great filmmaker was horrible to Rita Hayworth, and therefore I'm not a huge fan. <laughs> and let me say, his makeup was actually really, really good, good in this because it was so bad. If that makes sense, he at all. he looks like he's on his deathbed. They exactly. have him like on his deathbed. He's acting the scene wonderfully. I love the way we follow this like chain of office. It's just this Same. big gold ornate necklace slash chain with the S's. The, yeah, I that indicates S's. I forget the chancellor. The chancellor. The um, um, it was chancellor. Okay. Norfolk literally takes it off of him <laughs> as he's lying on his deathbed, and Woolsey's like saying something to Norfolk that's probably super important. But Norfolk's just like, uh huh, uh huh. I'm just gonna take this. Okay, bye. Bye. And then we get more becoming Chancellor, which this scene. I liked the parallels that we get in a minute. So it's in this grand, I guess, courtroom-ish sort of space. Looks kind of vaguely cathedral-esque. Which is, didn't, I believe in an earlier scene too, Moore has specifically stated that he does not want to be chancellor. But when this Woolsey, feels like a and I think, I think when Woolsey started, it, yeah. no, percent. well, I mean, George R. R. Martin stole like all of Game of Thrones from like basically British history. Fair. Not it's more some earlier stuff, but like this, I'm sure very heavily influenced <laughs> a lot of it. Um, but Woolsey starts like floating around some other names, including Thomas Cromwell, who yes was actually related to Oliver Cromwell, but also who is a, happened the later, which is not, so freaking ironic. But yes, is an absolute classic sleazy statesman oh my goodness um he fo- he fits that stereotype really well but uh including cromwell's name that woolsey floats and uh Moore's like no like no like i would be better than those people like it can't be those people like they'll do- basically like they're not more ethical and they'll do it wrong and woolsey's <laughs> like well then that means you sir and he's like but i don't want it like it's yeah it's uh, okay well if you don't want it don't make an argument that puts you as the only true candidate come on dude yeah but the scene when they finally like make him take the oath and how they slowly zoom in on the amulet over everything else is just, 
I find it super impressive because it's really hammering home how the position itself is overshadowing literally anything else Mm -hmm. in Moore's life or really probably the only person who doesn't give a shit is King George, but also does for one thing. Well, for starters, there is no King George. Fuck. (sighs) Henry VIII. Yes. God. This is, you know, I'm bad with names, and I'm especially bad when there are multiples of one name. You were required to take history in school, right? Like, I know we went to a technical institute. Did you take any history courses in college? History courses in college because I took them all in high school. I basically got a minor in it. That hurts my heart. Well, remember the I didn't even take like any advanced European history, but yeah. So whatever the fuck his name was, Henry the (laughs) Eighth. He's There's the only one that cares. There's a song about him. There's an entire Showtime series about him. The Tudors. Since you won't read actual history, watch The Tudors. It's history? I don't read anything at this point in my life. It's so depressing. It's fairly historically <laughs> accurate. Anyway, anyway, he is now the chancellor. Moore is now the Moore chancellor. is the chancellor. So moving on. From my past follies, of which there are many. <laughs> <laughs> Moving from the past ones to look forward to the future ones. Exactly. Continue. The future ones are more interesting. We finally get a brilliant introduction to King Alfred the Seventeenth, Henry the Eighth. <laughs> that was on purpose. Thank I know. You. <laughs> I know. But I don't want some poor listener to get super confused and okay, or I'm to get sorry. irate King at you, Henry the Eighth. Thank you. You have his. We can also call him Robert Shaw. <laughs> Robert, I'm good with that. Robert Shaw was some... He did real good. And he he also looked real good. Right? I was like, that's Quint. (laughs) Just saying. Um, Anyway, he has his flotilla of riverboats. I'm just going to say, I know you were just like, "Mm, King Henry VIII looks real good. Remember, his six wives, divorced, beheaded, died. I did Divorced, beheaded, somehow survived okay remember i did not say king henry the eighth looked good i said robert shaw looked good. i just need you very different people very true (laughs) very true though i don't know how many times robert shaw was married so can't confirm Uh, it's fine it's fine he he didn't behead his wife that i can guarantee (laughs) yes anyway he has his flotilla they're like building up the Um, suspense okay first off can we talk about rude no notice just Shows up with a massive okay. party of people you know, at their like, house and is technically like, technically owns me. that house, right? Still rude. <laughs> I just, no, no. I you, loved it. I, I you can't it. just show up with a retinue but they also at somebody's knew. house and be like, feed me. How, how did they prepare? They got so little warning though, but there is a nice shot where somebody comes up and tells them and they're all like ready at dinner praying and they're like, the king's coming. And then you have Margaret and, uh, this is more like kind of doing the like cartoon, like one runs one way and then they run back and then they're like, Where, who's going to go do what to prep for this really rude king who's decided to just show up? Well, but the first time we see him, it like hammers home his impulsive craziness when he jumps in the mud. Like the mercurial aspect of King Henry VIII. It also, it shows his instability. It also shows how much power he has because he jumps in the mud and everyone initially looks scared because they're like, why one, why the fuck did he do that Two, 
how is he going to react to this? Like, is he going to think it's my fault? Like, I don't know. I didn't know there was mud there. Like, what did you want me to do? And then he starts laughing this insane laugh and everybody else starts doing it. But like so much. (laughs) They're like, ha, 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 ha. Like, it's the most stressed out. Like I'm trying to prove that I'm boisterous and I'm with you. Well, I'm terrified of you. Is like, and then they all do it too, and they all jump in the mud. And I'm sorry, but like I don't care who you are. If I watch you jump the mud, I'm gonna be fucking idiot. I'm walking around. How would you walk around? The whole shoreline was mud. Um, it is Renaissance time. I am a lady. Don't give me that look. I am a lady. And <laughs> no, I was just saying you were going to pull a Mulan and be part of the king's posse. Oh, I was no, I can still be part of the posse and insist somebody who's lower on the social scale than me put their cape on the mud <laughs> for me to walk through. No, I'd be honestly, I'd be like, I'm staying in the boat. We don't show up at people's houses unannounced. This is rude. Bring me a sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'd be like, I brought boat snacks. Oh, my goodness. I got stuck in a car in really bad traffic one time with no car snacks on a road trip. And And hangriness ensued. It was one of the worst experiences. Well, now you know. So now I don't do road trips without car snacks. (laughs) And I would not do boat trips without boat snacks. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So he arrives. He gets a welcome. They're here. Hello. I I did like the banter between Susanna York and Robert Shaw, though. Okay. It was so good. I love this scene because... King Henry's like, ah, Margaret Moore, I've heard so much about you. I hear you're like educated and all of that shit. And, and then, bam, Latin. He he tries to get her because uh, he speaks to her in Latin and then she's answering him and he's asking what languages she speaks and she's listing them. Her Latin is more fluid than his is. She seems more comfortable in it. And I love that detail that she seems more confident and comfortable speaking Latin than he does. And he's clearly kind of taken aback by it. And I love the bit where he turns around to look at the retinue and she had been like in a curtsy and she starts to stand up and yeah, ta- puts his like, hand nope. on her head and like slowly makes her go back into the curtsy. <laughs> um, and then Henry turns around and he's like, okay, so like you're educated, but can you dance? Uh, and then she gives him that at yeah. least. Yeah. Which, Okay. Bless you, Margaret, for being a gracious host. <laughs> I just, I loved the mic drop and I thought it was great. And I loved the moment between Margaret and her father. And I do, like, I agree that this is such a great way to set up the character of Henry VIII because we don't see him a ton. We don't. But the scene that immediately follows hammers home everything that we were like, oh, this is innocuous. He's just a buffoon. He is not a buffoon. No, he's fucking crazy. He's terrifying. Because he goes, uh, starts... Oh, because re- remember when I was just listing all his wives, yeah. what happened to him, and I mentioned that two of them, just two of them had been beheaded? Maggie, that's less than half. That's not all of the people who were beheaded. That's just the wives that were beheaded. There but were a shit ton of other of people wives. beheaded. You know why they were beheaded, Ian? Because he didn't produce a Y chromosome. Also, I mean, he was very concerned with having an heir, but that goes back to, like, all of this other historical stuff that, frankly, we don't have the time to go into. But people research the anarchy in British history. It's really interesting with uh, King Stephen and Empress Maud. But there was a lot of anxiety around, like, we mm-hmm. have to have, like, a male heir because, like, a queen will lead to instability, which is super ironic because Henry basically stressing out these six poor women who end up married to him 
one of them has a son who is super sickly and later dies. Mary, his eldest daughter, becomes queen, followed by Elizabeth, Anne Boleyn's daughter, who becomes like one of the greatest rulers in British history, has an entire age named after her. Her father doesn't suck on that. And she like is an amazing queen. So everything he was super anxious about and like led to him basically destabilizing like a government and a society and everything over like you end up with a woman as queen anyway and she does a bang up job it's delicious <laughs> so many people died for something so stupid hey but at the time it mattered a lot apparently <sighs> apparently fuck that hey i'm just saying so this conversation terrifying but also very illuminating yes one of my favorite lines is screaming so everyone can hear him in the open window because house more... i have no damn wife <laughs> yes yes this is a very important oh, like goodness. interesting setup because they have more in henry outside like quote alone talking about important things but everyone in the house can hear them oh. through the window and well, everyone only in the house when the king gets really angry and yelling i mean when he starts yelling but that's a lot of that conversation it's like half and it goes back and forth which i love but it's the like levels he hits are amazing the point is there are people inside who can hear him shouting and everyone is petrified because they don't know what he's gonna understandably do next. um because henry is saying wolsey couldn't get me my divorce thomas go get me my divorce and thomas is like well okay, so to get a divorce, you have to get one, like, dispensation from the Pope. And, like, the Pope said no, so I don't know what you want me to do. And Henry's like, just do it. Like, bleh. And then he can't stay for dinner. I wouldn't want him to stay for dinner. Get the fuck out. <laughs> I mean, I would have gotten beheaded disagree. so quickly, and there's no way I would have survived I know. that time period. Or your tongue would be gone. Like, that's probably what would have happened. Your parents no, would have because been like, of my tongue, Maggie to survive. And if my tongue is gone, I still have two middle fingers. <laughs> okay, back on topic. Everybody leaves. The scene with the posse having to swim to the boat and the king just like cracking up about it. Again, hammered home how fucking insane. Okay, this that dude is. now that would it be was me. funny. I would, but still, I would do that. I, that's how you end this. <laughs> I was gonna say if I was a monarch and you were my posse. Because let's face it, there's no way I can get more than just me, you to follow me. I would leave you at the dock and then be like, Ian, come on, you were running late, just swim to the boat. And I would be like, I'll walk. <laughs> no, you'd do it. You would do it. <laughs> I don't know. It depends. What am I wearing? We're not going down this rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there is one line that I really wanted to pull out of that conversation that Henry screams, and that is, see how you've maddened me. Oh, my God. And that pissed me off. Well, because yeah. it's gaslighting and abusive behavior. Because what he's saying is he's saying... It's your fault. It's, it's your fault that I'm being irrationally angry because something isn't going my way. Like, it's... Oh, it, I, but I that sets up everything about his characters where he's blaming everybody else. And that's why everybody else is going to have to face consequences. And that's kind of the bit where we... Even if you didn't know, like, the history and didn't know who Sir Thomas More was uh -huh. historically, like, you know things are going to go badly for him because you know he is not dealing with a rational adult. Oh, yeah. It's it's game over at this yeah. point. Yeah, and he has not quite – I think he knows it, but he's not really recognizing the realities of it. Well, I – it almost feels like he never really does, but yeah, I do like his response though. When Henry's like, "Are you going to help me out with this?" and Thomas is like, "Whatever may be done by smiling, you may count on me to do." 
AKA, I'll do what I can, but like, he I can't. never does or says anything that he can't do. You know yes. what I mean? Oh, so the, the writing, the dialogue is, so is great. beautiful. The way that they worm their way into specific responses, it's, it's good. Mm-hmm. And his wife and Margaret are both really concerned about the exchange that they overheard quite a bit of. And there was another line. I there's this in this section there were like several lines I wrote uh-huh. down that I wanted to pull out because we have some very heavy foreshadowing and dramatic irony when he explains to them this is not the stuff by which martyrs are made. Yeah, okay. Thomas More's a saint in the Catholic Church. He was literally murdered. <sighs> I was like, Thomas, no. I mean flee. <laughs> like I said earlier, flee. before we even started. Just in, in which flee. in which tense? Because we went Fled, through all of them. Flown. Flew? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's all the same verb either, but that's totally we fine. We can deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um I I also in the kind of like next set of scenes there were a couple we we immediately get another scene with Roper, which as we said earlier, he flips. But this is where we kind of get Moore's reigning theory about laws and he has this analogy to laws being the like forest in the land and so if the devil's coming for them what are you going to do cut down the laws just to make like get your way there who's going to save you when the devil turns on you and the wind blows across the plain and what are you going to hide behind I because what it was what Roper one is beautiful writing writing is but. yes um, I can't remember exactly what Roper is suggesting Thomas do, but it's something where Thomas would have to push aside like a law in order to accomplish the thing. Yeah. And Roper's saying, well, if it gets rid of something bad, why wouldn't you do it? Like if, if, if you had to push aside a law to get rid of the devil, why wouldn't you just push aside the law? Like basically like, isn't that the greater good? And Thomas responds with, I give the devil the benefit of law for my own safety's sake. It's like the idea of innocent until proven guilty. He's saying, I would not get rid of the law to vanquish the devil because the laws are what protect the innocent as well. Yeah. We have a baby in bathwater situation. Is great and in theory very true and should work. It doesn't work when you're under an an autocracy run by a crazy king who just wants to fuck Anne Boleyn. <laughs> like, I mean, anyway, it just anyway. It, <laughs> it's this beautiful sentiment, and I feel like that's so much of Thomas More's character. Is it's these beautiful ideals. I mean, and it sounds like something that you would hear in like the French Revolution literature uh-huh. and stuff like that, where it's it's this person who has such high ideals about like the way people should be treated and kind of this almost utopian desire for like equality and fairness to a certain extent. Well, um, and but to the point that you're willing to just forego any sort of realism. Of it's, it's not trying right. It's, he wants it to be perfect instead of better. Yeah. He's willing to forego yeah. better to get to perfect. Um, he's also willing to die for perfect, which is, uh, I can't anyway. It's, I can't, I'm always torn on that. I love like a good tragic hero and I'm like, it's beautiful to like, because you know, in the end everybody dies. So what do you leave behind other than like an ideal or something you yeah. fought for and worked for? And I think that's beautiful. But also at the same time, it's like, 
but why yeah i prefer a complex pragmatic hero over a squeaky clean pure one but i think i think more is a little complex because we'll get to some stuff later but there's some things he says later that i i think i think first off that his relationship with his daughter margaret really brings like a human quality to the character so that he doesn't seem just like this oh he's not crusading idealist well lawrence was a very complicated character he was an asshole, and I didn't like him, but I thought he was pretty complicated as of the second half of the movie. In the first half of the movie, I, I was like, stop whining the in the half. desert. I was literally thinking about him I was like, stop whining in the desert. Off the sun's anvil and then going back to get what's-his-face. But, anyway. but you know what I mean. But, like, it's <laughs> other than having just, like, a character that is – like, I would say Thomas Moore is a good character. Like, he is through and through a good human. Yeah. Ideal but instead fault. of seeing seeming like this, just unattainable, unrealistic shell of a character that's really an allegory type thing, like I think his relationship with his wife and his daughter really humanized the character. Yeah. And I think having, seeing him like make mistakes, like his treatment of Rich and his underestimation of how far Henry is willing to go, yeah, helps hammer that helps home as well. Humanize him. Yeah, I agree. Which I think is important because if a character is really just an ideal with a name i don't care as much yeah they're not a character yeah i want to see i want to see them struggle and have to wrestle with their ideals so moving past that bit we can tell things behind the scenes are starting to like get put into motion so rich after the king leaves and he's been like cast out of sir thomas moore's home for being a snitch which that happened in that scene with Roper too. But there's another thing where Rich is like, Cromwell has informants in your household and he points to the butler and Moore's like, well, of course my butler's his spy. His butler's in my household. Like, of course he has spies here. But then he's also not willing to like extend yeah. the same leniency to Rich as he is like other people. Like, well, his he has relationship a higher with... standard for Rich, but apparently. But why? I don't know. It seems so arbitrary. Like his, I agree. His dislike of Rich, like, I mean, I don't particularly like Rich because I do think he sells his soul to the devil for something that's definitely not worth it. No. But, like, I under I understand completely why he turns on more. Yeah. And I, I don't see. think more treats him super fairly, and I think that's a humongous mistake. Well, it As is the before. central mistake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but we we get actually a very well, I thought, well-filmed, well-constructed, and ex- especially from Rich's part, very well-acted, where Cromwell and Rich are having this rendezvous in some seedy tavern. You have, like, the bats flying overhead, this mm-hmm. really super dark, gritty space where... I love this kind of cat and mouse intellectual game that Cromwell is playing with Rich, where he is literally trying to back him into a word corner and get him to say one seemingly innocent thing that ultimately works to help incriminate right. uh, Sir Thomas More. Because Cromwell didn't trust anybody. No, which is smart. Smart, but really lonely, awful life. I mean... Hey, if it gets him what he wants, I'm not going to begrudge it's him okay. at this he point, does, he, 500 years later. He survives this. The character of Cromwell survives this movie. Thomas Cromwell did not survive his Oh, no. We learned that in the, the voiceover. It took no time for him to also be beheaded. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's Yeah, at a clear. certain point when people were like still vying to be like the right hand of the king when Henry VIII was in charge, I was like, like why? why do you people want to be a part of this? Have you You're seen how many walking. people have died? Like, come on. 
Like, I wanted to be like, statistically, you will not survive this. Yeah. I'm I'm like running through these more because it's like they're moving this historical set of events forward. So we get the point at which the Church of England is basically bribed into. It's created. Yeah. Yeah, because it's it was, created because Henry's the, like, if Canterbury... the Pope won't give me Archbishop of Canterbury, yes. it becomes the highest um, authority in the Church of England because Henry's like, fine, if the Pope won't give it to me, I'm going to do all of these like backward logic. Like basically, I'm going to create a church, create a system of logic that makes me that makes it OK for me to say that I have now created my own church and I'm going to put myself at the head of it. Which I feel like is why you, how you know that it wasn't done out of actually just like really strict ecclesiastical argument <laughs> is because he was like, I want the thing that the Pope won't give me, so I'm going to now put myself in charge. Now oh, by I the way, it's the like super okay because of like the Bible. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. It's um, fine. That thing happened. Of course, Thomas More resigns because he's like, what the fuck, dude? <laughs> yeah. Well, um, and More at this point still thinks that he can resign and get out of it but it's as become so apparent during the trial can't run. and i can't remember the exact quote during the trial he says but it's something about how silence is not or silence should be seen under the law as consent but they're at a point politically where i mean henry's full like if you are not 100 percent vocally for me you're 100 percent against me yeah like you can't he can't be neutral and thomas tries to be neutral when it's far too late for that Mm -hmm. oh yes and this this next couple set of scenes i think really hammers home his thinking there and beyond being some really nice pieces of character development Mm -hmm. so first he lets all the servants go because again not a great great household can't support a great staff matthew's kind of a a snot about it which like i get it it's your livelihood dude you're a spy just just leave fuck off like come on um, but the scene in their bedroom between Mrs. Cro- uh, Moore and Sir Thomas, I loved so much because it's him trying to convince her as to why she just has to not understand or know what he thinks. And it's like, OK, let me literally put your hand on the Bible here and make you swear an oath to tell the truth. Have I ever said anything about the marriage or disillusion of whatever this yeah ugh, he had a much more eloquent way of putting it anyway i just i don't know i thought it was because he's so sweet. and he has a conversation with margaret too where he's talking about the oath of supremacy because what henry the eighth does when he creates the church of england is he also creates this oath of supremacy which basically says that everybody has to swear that he is the highest religious authority uh-huh. and to not take that oath was saying I don't believe you. I don't believe that marriage is valid. Therefore, any children you would have from that marriage would not be a rightful heir. It's it's treason, yeah, basically. And Thomas is telling Margaret, if you are asked to take that oath, you take that oath. And Margaret's kind of trying to push back. And he's like, no, any oath that I can take in good conscience, I will take. But is basically telling Margaret, even if it's not in good conscience, you just take the oath. Like I, I like that I he is why he didn't do it. He is willing to fall on his own sword, but he is not willing to put his wife and his daughter on that sword, which is why he like is showing his wife like the reason I can't share my thoughts on this with you is because odds are you would get brought up in court and you would have to swear an oath that said that 
I had not done that. And I do not want you to perjure yourself before God, which obviously they're a very devout family. They're yep. very, that would be very big deal for them. And I also don't want you to like ca- be caught between perjuring yourself and incriminating me. Yeah. Because he knows that she would not incriminate him. Mm-hmm. Like he knows what choice his family would make and he doesn't want them to have to make that choice. Um, he also wants his family to survive, but I, I, I like something about a character that if they are willing to die for their ideals, they are not willing to make the decision for anybody else or right. put anybody else in danger for it. Oh no, it's the high, it is the ethical high road. Yeah. So, uh, so we were moving more towards more being imprisoned. So the the set of scenes with Cromwell brainstorming how to get more is delightful in how outclassed he is by Sir Thomas More, like in basically every regard. So he tries to get him on the Silver Cup incident, which comes back brings in the uh i guess the defendant in that case that had tried to bribe more mm-hmm. and the defendant is pissed that her bribe didn't actually do anything <laughs> so i again i thought that that was really nice to see how that bribe one didn't matter and two the best efforts of cromwell are still not enough and it goes so far as to have sir thomas more like in for a sworn statement about things Mm -hmm. and this is where i loved some of the writing that sir thomas more was like given in this scene so like he's opening it by taking a jab at rich and saying like oh that's a nice gown this is like hearkening back to an earlier conversation and rich's costuming steadily gets nicer and nicer and nicer and there's like even a bit where he walks into the house very early on and he's like oh i fell in the mud Oh yeah, and so we're he's like, come on. Mm, that's not the only mud you're gonna fall into. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, he we see very much um, visual indications of his rise. Oh yes, and in the scene too, I it's specifically with the king's book <laughs> about religion that he brings up and is basically trying to say, "Oh, Sir Thomas More, you wrote this book for the king." I just love the way that he was able to evade Cromwell's accusations so eloquently and effectively so again props to the writing for this with the adapted screenplay win i'm so on board yeah i mean i'm sure so much of the dialogue is just straight from the play but the uh person who adapted it is the person who wrote the play so oh well there you go yeah that's why it was so good (laughs) (laughs) he knew what to cut exactly so anyway that of course Cromwell trying to get Sir Thomas More on the record doesn't work, but things are so bad that the boatsman literally will not take him back to his place. Which rude, very rude. But Given I that love the shot of them shillings. just putting yeah. their torches in the water. But then um, remind me of the name of the other um, Norfolk. Norfolk, thank <laughs> yeah, you. Who shows up and he's like trying to talk to him, and Norfolk's like, "Dude, I cannot be seen with you." Well. And this was beautiful and so sad where Moore basically picks a fight and is like, okay, we need to make it look like you actually were casting me out. And he does. And it's like, ugh. It's, it again goes back to the let me die on my own sword. 
pretend like you don't yeah i'll die on my own sword i'm not gonna uh, push anybody else onto it it's so sad and then he's coming home to margaret in this like windstorm and i'm like this metaphorical and literal windstorm. i think this is where he has the conversation with her where he's like you will you have to survive yeah i just i anyway yeah so he's imprisoned now based like is more or less what happens. Also, every time I say more in this episode, I'm trying to not make it a pun, but I snicker inside a little bit. <laughs> you would. Um, they they have a really neat shot showing the passage of time through the window, though, mm-hmm. where it's like, okay, you have Cold the children winter. playing. Yep. And then winter and then spring with the lovers under the tree. And it's like, I found that to be kind of emotional. Yeah, it's, I think it's because of the way it's framed. Like, it, you're not just seeing it, like, out a window. You're seeing it through this very narrow, like, clearly thick stone, like, basically an arrow slot. Yeah. Um, And I think that framing of it and how they have so much of the screen is black and you just see that little bit, I think, makes it so much more effective. Yeah. So, it, I don't know. It was, it was really good. Mm-hmm. They try to get him again. And I'm kind of like... While this is a pretty Give scene up. and it's fun to listen to, you are not going to get him to do anything by just bringing before this like a little council. Now, again, the framing was gorgeous in the scene with uh, Thomas Moore kind of like framed by the door in the background and kind of way off to the side, not important. And having like, I don't know, the power dynamic was just, uh. anyway, thought that was extremely effective. But he goes back to an even worse cell without books. Well, yeah, because he's just talking about his books, and they're like, oh, I didn't know you had books in there. Yeah, Cromwell's an asshole. Fuck Cromwell. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then we get this heart-wrenching and just so well-done scene with his family. Because I love that they bring in Margaret, and he's like, did they bring you here to, like, try and talk me basically into confessing? She's like, yeah. Like they like they all know <laughs> they what's know. up. But they bring him like custard. He tries to talk about banal things like custard and how delicious it is. And his wife is having none of it. And let me just say for like she's been good the entire film, but this I think was like a standout performance for her. There w- there wasn't a bad performance in it. No, I thought every no, no. performance was really, really good. Yeah. And the way she kind of stood there with the the Granny Smith apples like turned away from him, obviously. This is what got her the hurt. nomination. This is Ugh. this is why she got that nomination for Best Supporting Actress was the scene. It's just I I hate not being able to put a more specific like pinpoint why it is so good. But it's just like you feel her hurt so strongly in that scene. It's the the idea that everybody knows how dire the situation is. Everybody knows how bad it is. Everybody knows how it's probably going to end. And he's trying so hard to pretend it's normal. Yeah. And she's like, why are we even bothering trying to pretend it's normal? I uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm, it's making me sad. Yeah. But it's beautiful. But it is beautiful. And Susanna York is so good, too. Like, okay, again, not a bad performance in this scene. Yeah. Um, not a bad performance in the movie. No. No. It's it's very well acted. So, anyway, they are, their time is up. I do love how the jail keeper at the end was like, I don't want no trouble. I'm just here doing my job. <laughs> <laughs> and and Sir Thomas More is like, okay, I don't, I don't fault you. But yeah. anyway, we get into the trial, which is like the culmination mm. of all of this oh, drama. So much, so much anger, all the injustice. I was having 
so many flashbacks to Life of Emile Zola, but like worse because like I knew that this one wasn't going to end up the way we wanted it to end up. Yeah. So Sir Thomas More is there. We get a lot of legal banter again and not in treason not because he just hasn't said anything in favor of i mean i guess you could say his resignation they're like oh you were coming out against it by resigning but like he's not out there like no but the fact that he's crusading against everything i know but i feel like that is how you know when people in that position of power are know that they are doing something wrong or know that there are reasons they are giving people for why they are doing something aren't the actual reasons for why they're doing it. Like their justifications aren't valid Uh is because they are so paranoid that even the silence of one person is a threat to them. I just rolled my eyes. But like, that's, that's not at Maggie. That's how you know that like this entire trial is like an absolute shame shame. is because they're so afraid of Sir Thomas More, who would honestly be so happy to just like be cooped up, cooped up in his house with his books and his family. That's all he wanted. Like he would have gone the fuck away. He would have. (laughs) He would have gone the fuck away. But alas. And then uh, for icing on the cake, they bring in the new attorney general of Wales, Mr. Rich. Oh, my God. What he says to Rich, because this is their star witness. What he says to Rich is he says, and again, we have the symbolism with like the chain of office. Um, Moore looks at him and says, it profits a man nothing to give his soul for the whole world, but for whales. <laughs> Which I don't think is shade necessarily against whales, but like it would have... it. Like, it's a government office. It's a good government office, but it's not the highest government office. And so, so you just gave everything you had to get a not high government office. It's, it's, I don't want to say it's not high, but you know what I mean? Like, it's, he's, You're he's not saying king. you should, like, why would, like, selling your soul for the entire world, selling your soul to be king is reprehensible enough because, like, it's your soul, it's your humanity. Selling it for less than that? Like, come on, man. Yeah. And the look on Rich's face, and I, John Hurt's performance as he's giving evidence is so good, because with that line from Moore, you're you're just watching this man's internal struggle between like his own ambition, like his own resentment, feeling that he's been wronged by Moore, but also knowing that what he's saying isn't true, and you know the worst parts of him went out at the end. Although frankly, at that point, I don't think he could have like not done it and have survived. Oh yeah. Like he's, when, when he's the judge far asks too far if in. he wants to change his testimony, I'm like, but the look no. on, but the look on the actor's face, look on John Hurt's face. He considers it. He wants to, <laughs> he wants to, but he's scared to. Oh, and I would be too. Like, I would be too, but this is, I'd, again, be this a dead is, man again, walking. this is what makes Thomas more the better man. Is and I'm gonna finally pull out my quote from Grendel because as I was watching this, I was immediately thought of one of my favorite literary quotes of all time from uh-huh. the book Grendel by John Gardner, which I happen to have a copy of in which I went and found the quote so that I could read it on this podcast. I don't judge. Um, but this is the quote I thought of in reference to Sir Thomas More, and I think it's so illustrated by like the difference between. More sitting there at that trial and answering all his questions honestly versus uh-huh. 
Rich, who I think genuinely wants to change his testimony, but is far too afraid to for ever, for not just losing his life, but everything else he would be yeah. losing. And that is the hero sees value beyond what's possible. That's the nature of a hero. It kills him, of course, ultimately, but it makes the whole struggle of humanity worthwhile. <sighs> so Thomas Moore's quote. the better man. It's a good quote. <laughs> well, was there ever any doubt that he was? No, because this is based on historical events. We know exactly what happened (laughs) because it's very well documented. uh, documented. Um, So yeah, he's convicted. They, uh, the thing that kills me is Cromwell doesn't even let the jury deliberate. He's like, do you really (gasps) have to deliberate? I I about was mm. so mad. I was like, you can't fucking gaslight a jury, but this is how, again, we all knew that this whole thing was a sham. It's, Just because you have a jury there doesn't make this justice. It was just a, the thinnest veneer of propriety. Yes, because the jury gets up to go off and deliberate like a jury's supposed to do. Um, and Cromwell doesn't And ask. Cromwell's like, wait, do you really need to, like, deliberate on this? Like, but the evidence is so clear. And everyone's like, what evidence? Hearsay. I mean, every, every spectator was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> so I appreciated but that at least they were able so to clamor. everyone's so terrified. Oh, yeah. Because off the with their head, literal, yeah. So he's convicted. Spoiler alert, <laughs> <laughs> and is executed. Which that execution scene, the way it was filmed, on this bright sunny day against a bright blue sky, gorgeous. And then his talking to the executioner, like you're doing your duty dude. I think it's such I an asshole you. move that they would make the person who's about to be executed pay the executioner. But he does. It's and like it makes it's me like, like to him let more. But no, but like you just you had to. Like that was a thing everybody had to do. It's not a What happens if you had thing. no money? I don't know. They probably like gave you what they were going to pay the executioner or like hand it to the executioner and I'd be like, <laughs> "Fuck you, you hand it to the executioner." It's like how I don't mind paying taxes, but I really don't like that I'm required to fill out paperwork for it. Like just take my money. <laughs> just take it. Like don't make me fill stuff out for it. I don't mind. Just have it. Go. <laughs> oh my goodness. I do want new roads. You're welcome to it. Don't make me fill out paperwork. This was to remove his head though. Not I know, to so, repave Peachtree Street. You know what? Fine. I committed treason. <laughs> Take my head, but don't make me pay the executioner. Oh, my goodness. Okay. The way it ended, though. I said to a lesser extent, <laughs> Ethan. And by to a lesser extent, I meant to a much, 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 much lesser extent. That was like 18 too few muches. <laughs> <laughs> I'll Sorry, cop I'm it. just being. I'm, I'm no, being you're an, right. You're right. But now. just take my just take my much lesser. <laughs> don't make me don't make me have to sit here and analyze it. Oh, my gosh. Okay, the way this ended, though, with the thud and the, like, immediate cut to black. We don't see any beheading. We just see the axe raise against the blue sky, and we see the axe fall out of frame, and we hear the thud. And And it goes to black. To black. Oh, that was dramatic. I did not like the voiceover at the end, though. I didn't either. It was, was like, too much of, it it was I wish it had just been straight to black and nothing. Like, I wanted it to just end. But they had this voiceover at the end telling that, like, Cromwell was later executed and like what happened to Rich too like and Margaret kept her father's head yeah that was I'm sorry what weird. <laughs> oh yeah that his head was like on the gate because they used to put the yeah, executed the people's heads on the traitor's gate people guys people were gross people still are gross but people were like extra gross back then anyway I 
like I said at the beginning of this, I found this to be a well-constructed movie with like great character development, fantastic performances. Did I connect to the themes? Eh, sort of, but... I really enjoyed it because the themes really speak to me and because I find this period in history really interesting uh-huh. and I do love a good political intrigue. That being said, I do still firmly believe that Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf should have won. Uh-huh. I think it's just more inventive. I think it also has really important themes. Um, I think it's actually darker than this. Uh, we'll watch it at some point. Oh, I want to watch it. So I'm thinking I'm going to put it at number 22. So it's like solidly middle of the pack. Pretty good movie. So that puts it after The Lost Weekend, but before West Side Story. I, as much as I'm like, eh, the themes were okay, I think that they were weightier and kind of more worthy than what I saw in West Side Story. I know I'm going to get a lot of flack for that because I know a lot of people relate to West Side Story very heavily. (laughs) So my apologies. But I don't know. I thought it was... No, Ian, I too relate to dance fighting very heavily. (laughs) Um, I, I don't know. Uh-oh. Some West Side Story Uh-oh. snaps. I'm going to have to do a flying pirouette in a minute. <laughs> so I don't know. I thought as a package, it was more effective and probably better shot. But The Lost Weekend, I found to be like arresting in its visuals. And its themes were so much more in your face. I don't know. Um, I love The Lost Weekend. It's, yeah. I'm just thinking back to kind of the noir aspects of it with him seeing the bottle of liquor in the light fixture or him at the top of the stairs at this one woman's place where he's looking for like i don't know from a visual standpoint it just sticks out Mm -hmm. so i am putting it at number 18 so a little bit higher than you still thoroughly middle of the pack so it is before ben-hur interesting ben-hur i enjoy but there are also long stretches of it that i'm i think the pacing's off i never really thought that the pacing was off in here i also i like that the scope of a man for all seasons is smaller where Uh we're dealing with this one very in-depth political intrigue i think that all of the writing's so good and i thought that all of the performances were so good it really captured my attention um but i am putting it after lawrence of arabia because it it doesn't have the visual impact that Lawrence of Arabia did. And while Lawrence of Arabia is not one of my favorites, and while I much prefer Sir Thomas More as the protagonist of my film than Lawrence, I did have a lot of fun being mad at Lawrence. <laughs> <laughs> and I really liked Omar Sharif and his character in oh, that. Yes. So I think and I I think like that movie has some very like clear themes, although I'm not sure I have talked to some people since we did that episode and I know what we took away from it isn't always what other people take away from it. But I think that also is maybe something that elevates that film above A Man for All Seasons a little bit is that I think with A Man for All Seasons, it's a pretty straightforward message. Like it's dealing with some very lofty ideas, but they're not groundbreaking though. They're not groundbreaking. And I feel like there's not as much room for like interpretation, which like clearly, like I said, I've talked to people who got a very different message from Lawrence of Arabia and a Uh very different lesson from it than you and I both got. So I think like that's a point in having Lawrence above a man for all seasons is that there is room for interpretation. Yeah. But yeah, but still solidly middle of the pack. I still really enjoyed it. If you're a history nerd, go for it. 
and I still I you like watching watch the the little man struggle against the corrupt government and lose, but lose in a emotionally powerful way. <laughs> go for it. But if really... you two also really love <laughs> Le Mis, go for it. <laughs> but really what Maggie is saying, just watch Emile Zola instead. Yes, because it been so much happier, but but we like earn the happiness emotionally. It's very satisfying. It's not paced as well though. Next time what we are doing time? the Oh my goodness, the 40th, 40th best I picture. think a couple episodes ago, we said we were going to reorder our list once we hit the 40th, but I think we're going to wait until we're done with the 60s. But yeah, next time, 40th episode, it is In the Heat of the Night. <gasps> I'm pretty sure that's Sydney Poitier. It is. Oh, it's going to be a good one. I'm excited about that. I mean, looking at the uh, cover of it on Wikipedia here, I am very excited because it's got this very stark red and black. Like, yeah, I'm I'm excited. Yeah. I know good. nothing about it other than the cover and the name. I know a little bit, and I know it's a Poitier film, so it's going to be good. It's going to have some like meaty social commentary, and he's going to be fabulous. Well, good. I'm glad. Join us next time. Until then, you can find us on social media. We are at Best Pictures Pod on Instagram and Twitter. We'd love to hear from you, hear from your thoughts about this movie, other movies that we've done, movies that we haven't done. Yeah, you can even tell me why King Alfie the Third is like the best king ever. You can also tell Ian that he's an <laughs> idiot, and I will like and retweet you. Um, <laughs> but yes, we're at Best Pictures Pod on Instagram and Twitter for longer form stuff. You can write us in at Best Pictures Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and join us next time for In the Heat of the Night.